This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jin Yi Li from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Drs. Bettina Gramlich-Oka and Anne Walthall with us to talk about their new edited volume, Women and Network in 19th Century Japan. It was published by University of Michigan Press last year. Bettina and Anne are both historians of early modern Japan. Bettina currently teaches at Sophia University in Japan, while Anne teaches at uh, University of California, Irvine. So this volume integrates articles that examine women's roles in various kinds of networks within or outside of the family, as well as their roles in male-dominant networks during Japan's Tokugawa and Meiji period. Welcome, professors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having having us here. Yes. Thank you. Yes, yes. So before diving... Lovely to be here. <laughs> thank you. Before diving into the book, could you briefly talk about your own work? I know that you work on various things regarding Japanese history. Um, what's your recent uh, project focused on? Maybe I go first because mine is much shorter than Anne's, <laughs> certainly. But, well, let me one more time really um, thank you, Jingyi, um, for this opportunity on behalf of all the authors and co-editors of the volume, because this is really a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk about the book, which is an edited volume, which makes it also you know, a little bit more complicated for you to address, you know, all the content and things because it's not a monograph. So really, thank you. Um, And now about myself, which is much shorter. (laughs) There's not so much to say about it. Well, I'm a historian interested in the Tokugawa period. And I started off um, with my master's working on the cholera epidemics of 1858 and was therefore very much interested in his history of medicine. And then later I moved over for my PhD to work on Tadano Makusu and um, her very different thinking um, in the late Tokugawa period. And that brought me over to the Nagasaki trade. I was working on the economic history of the Edo period. And now I'm very much involved in looking really more closely into the records of the Rai family of Hiroshima. And my chapter in the book also addresses um, just one facet of that research. That's That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) And what about you, Anne? Um, Well, I agree with everything Bettina has said about uh, having this wonderful opportunity to talk about our book. As for my work, it's... (laughs) I've, I'm not teaching anymore, by the way. I am retired. Let me make that very, very clear. Uh, my, so my work published focused at one point on peasant uprisings and on peasant women, then on women's biography, uh, masculinity and guns. And now I'm working on a manuscript that I've titled, provisionally anyway, In the Presence of Gods and Spirits, Hirata Atsutane and His Collaborators. Uh, and so the... Uh, paper that I put in the volume on uh, Hirata's wife, Orise, uh, has a tangential tangential relationship uh, to this manuscript, although most of the manuscript focuses on uh, material culture and material religion and how that can help us understand how people try to get into the presence of gods and spirits. That sounds very interesting. I look forward to reading it. 
Well, first it has to get written, and it hasn't done that. I haven't done that quite finished. I haven't quite finished with it yet. But you will. Okay. Um, okay. Yes. Um, so what brought you, uh, you two together to work on this volume? Well, th that has a rather long history, um, <laughs> much longer <laughs> and more time-consuming than it should have had. And um, yes, I'm to blame for that. Well, it all began actually with a research project um, called Network Studies that um, started at Sofia University in 2010. So it really has been around for a while. And the Institute of Comparative Culture at Sofia um, is so generous to fund this project. And actually, since then, it still is ongoing. And in the beginning, we had um, monthly reading groups, then we invited scholars to give talks and presentations. And at one point, I think it was late 2013, the idea sprang up that we should have a symposium. And so in 2013, we had a symposium called exactly like the book title, Women and Networks in the 19th Century of Japan. And because of its success, we had a, a sequel. <laughs> we had in 2014 another symposium um, under the same title. And in the first one, we had 19 participants who were presenting and discussing. And in the second one, we had even 22 participants. So we had really many people coming together, presenting their research, discussing it. And of course, we had a huge audience as well. So from there, the idea was, well, we really ought to do something with all this material that we listened to and discussed. And um, the first step was to go to the EAJS, the European Associations of Japanese Studies. And I think it was in 2017 in Portugal, in Lisbon, when we had um, a two-session panel where I think six of us presented their research. And that was then more and more going closely to something that would evolve into a future volume on that topic. So we had talks, a smaller group gathered together. Um, when Anne was in Japan, we would you know, talk about what, how, how should it look like. And in the very beginning, we even thought we have a, one version in English and then one version in, in Japanese, but then we dismissed the latter one very briefly, thinking, no, you know, let's just focus on one volume, getting it out in English. And actually, one of the biggest missions of this volume was to have Japanese scholarship being introduced in English. And I think we really achieved it. Five out of the 10 chapters are translations um, by scholars who are very well known but who usually do not have their work translated into English. So that was our main mission. And the timing came, you know, in 2014 when we really started considering it and started preparing the translations that I also had a very large task to achieve at my university and that hasn't stopped. So the delays that it um brought with it to take another few years <laughs> to complete it are really just my fault. Um, I just got really busy because at the moment we submitted the completed manuscript to the University of Michigan Press. I mean, it went so smoothly and they are really, they were wonderful. All these editors at Michigan are really recommended just for being um just so wonderful to work with. And, you know, really, then it speeded up. So I'm to blame because I'm a very slow writer and an even slower thinker. But that is basically the history of the volume. That's wonderful. Um, one of my favorite things about this book, actually, uh, a few of my favorite chapters from the book are from Japanese authors and I, I just truly appreciate your effort and other uh, the other scholars who translated their works the the effort to introduce their Japanese works to Western readership because um, we I, I do think we need such um, bridging more and more you know scholarship right now so so thank you for for that effort we try <laughs> we try certainly. <laughs> 
Yes, I mean, it was really, I mean, and she actually even translated one of the chapters. So, I mean, it's it's really the work that goes into this, making it, um, you know, really more adjusted to the English readership too. It's not just a literal translation. So there's lots of steps that are involved in this path, which also takes a little bit of time, but um, having these specialists around. And one of the chapters by um, Fumiko Miyazaki, I mean, she publishes in English as well. So she that one was not translated. And having her also as one of the co-editors um, was also very, 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 you know, hope, helpful in, in that she would be able to fine-tune some of these um, issues that come up and can get lost in translation. So that was really a wonderful thing. That Indeed. Had. Now to turn to the book, um, the center question of this volume is how women's engagement uh, related to issues of family, mobility, and work. Could you talk about how the book is structured and how that sets up the answers for the question? Yeah, that's a great question question because I think, yes, I think in the introduction, I I talk about these three key terms, right, about um, work and and also mobility and family. But actually, the structure of the book is much more simple, (laughs) because we decided to go um, to divide up the book into three parts. And one of them is based on kinship relations, you know, networks that come out of, of family and relatives' relations. The other part is then the non-kinship relations. And the third one is about uh, relations where women are not active participants at all, but they are used. They're part of um, a different type of a network. So that is actually the official structure of the book, because that seemed to um, help readers along to navigate through the book and what we do. Underneath of it, though, you will find these three key terms like mobility, work, and family, um, you know, showing up in the various chapters in different combinations. And I think that was important for us to um, highlight that in the beginning, keep your eyes open that there is so much more to relations amongst people, not only women. Um, and if you look at these these um, flag posts of mobility, was it voluntarily? Was it not voluntarily? Um, what kind of work are we talking about? The work relations and also kinship, you know, how complicated and complex can they be? That you're just a little bit more aware of it, that even though our structure, because you have to have a structure <laughs> in a book, um, is given in one way, there are also other ways how to think about um, the individual chapters. Because what we did not aim to do with the volume is to request from the authors to follow one particular theoretical framework. So we did not say, think about um, networks in terms of social network analysis as it's common in certain disciplines. We, we talked about it in the beginning. Um, in particular, Japanese scholars asked me often, what do you mean by network? <laughs> and how, how do you define it? And I said, you know, we, we better really try to, to keep this open and more vibrant in a, in, a, in a way that the authors could bring their own perspective to the narrative and instead of us trying to trim it to one perspective only. So that's why I think these three keywords, they are an additional um, guide through the book that is not trying to be one coherent narrative at all. I hope that sort of answers the question. And this maybe Anne has something to add? <laughs> No, I think you did a very good job of it. I think it's really important never to. Uh, I, I, I know with with uh, Shiva Keiko and also Sugano san, they did have trouble figuring out what do we mean by network, and so in some cases we had to help them bring their argument more to the fore, uh, so it didn't remain implicit. Hmm. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. That 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 brings up uh, this question that I wanted to save for later, but. Um, 
I, I guess to to not not to force you to make a generalization about network, but let's say、um, in Japanese or English scholarships, when network is used in different contexts or when they have different nuances, what are some of the differences you have noticed when editing this volume, when、um, integrating articles from by authors from all over the world? I think one of the The very good issues about this volume is the clear focus on women. So that puts you already into you know you have this which should never be a category as such. So, but we have this focus. You know, we have to be honest. Yes, this is you know we talk about women's experiences, and each woman is, of course, different. It's an individual person with a different type of social position. Um, a different、um, educational background, a different life course. So we have something that they do have in common, and and the focus by、um, just you know looking at one individual's life in many of the chapters, not all of the chapters. We also have、um, chapters integrated where it is not about one woman's life, but actually it's about、um, a network of men. About loans, so we have that too. Or we have Fukusawa Yukichi, who theorizes about a network that would be great for women to have.、Um, so we do have these different types of approaches, and I didn't really think it was was difficult to go by because all of the chapters、um, reflect the close readings of、um, primary documents and sources. So really, the sources speak. For themselves, in 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 many of the chapters, you know that is becomes the guide instead of、um, trying to force a theoretical idea and notion how a network ought to look like in the Edo period. So in that regard, it was not really much trouble、um, in in going through these chapters and seeing the high quality of what they what they bring to the table. That's brilliant. I'll definitely have to quote you in my dissertation.、Mm-hmm. Now, to to turn to、uh, the center of、um, the one of the center purposes of your book. So you mentioned in the beginning that one of the motivations of your book is to decenter history,、um, because it might be natural for a lot of people to think that men were the center of these networks in early modern times. But your book proves that inaccurate by looking into specific examples where women actually played vital roles in these networks. But you're also not trying to argue that these women's networks were special; that these women's roles were different from men's roles. So why is this point so important for you and for this book? Well, I think that.、Um... Let's see. Let me take a long roundabout way about answering this. For both men and women, the primary goal in pre-modern times was the perpetuation and survival of the families. You know, they, the house, and networks played an important role in making that happen. Now, of course, there are areas of life in which men's, in which men's and women's roles were neither supplementary nor complementary. Women bore children, whereas men participated in politics. But those areas are not the focus of this book. They've been the focus of many other books.、Um, for the most part, it is important to emphasize that in terms of networks, men's and women's roles were not all that different,、uh, because all too often, and I, we wanted to emphasize that because women's networks are often ignored, whereas men's networks have been celebrated for constituting the building blocks of social life. Um, indeed, men's networks are the building blocks of civilization,、uh, and I think that our book shows that women's networks too constitute the building blocks of social life, and women's networks too contributed to Japan's cultural identity.、Uh, and this is true whether you're looking at the records that women produced, as so many of us do, or, for example, when Luke Roberts、uh, points out even men's records. Provide glimpses of women who were socially active, going out on pleasure outings with other women, visiting temples, participating in festivals, writing poetry.、Um, 
you know, and, and so it's it's I think important not to assume that because women were, uh, you know, in played a greater role in private, whereas men played a greater role in public, uh, that women's roles were so very different. Because in in terms of networks, and in terms of what the, the consequences of having networks, women's networks and men's networks were not all that different. That's a great point. Um, Bettina, do you have anything to add to this um, question? Well, Anne really put it very eloquently already <laughs> in her answer. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, it's it's really not about only that, that can't, you know, how, how does it look? I mean, people have to connect. And so it's not, not being the gender alone. And I think in, you will find it, we concentrate and focus here on women to make that point but you will also find that in each chapter it's not only gender that matters right so it's not only the divide like it's a man's network that's a woman's network so you have many more layers to each connection and relation that people build and create and that come together and they also part again so yes there is much more that needs to be focused on i think also for for future research that's that's wonderful. And another important thing that you mentioned um, is the documentation of women in social networks. Because comparing to the extensive number of textual records left behind by men, women's writing, with, whether it be diaries or letters, seem to me to be harder to gather. Um, mm-hmm. I assume these records are essential for this book. So could you maybe elaborate more on this issue of documentation by women as well as literacy among women since um, literacy was also one of the um, important themes in your book. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we were trying to do is there have been, there have been a number of books that have been written about uh, women and literacy. In fact, there's a book titled Women in Literacy, as I recall. Uh, but the question is, what did women do when they were literate? Uh, but to answer your the question first, it's for the early modern Japan, Estimates for women's literacy suggest a range of between 10 and 15 percent and rising in the 19th century. Now, of course, what this means is that ruling class women, wealthy women, urban women were more likely to read and to do sums. Uh, However, even in farm villages, we find that some farmers' daughters learned to read and do sums because some knowledge benefited, such knowledge, I would say, benefited the family. Uh, This is this is in a society by the early 19th century where it's really important to be able to do math. Uh, and if you, you know, if you're going to have any, if you're going to be involved in any kind of business at all, and both men and women were, you need to make sure you're not going to be cheated by somebody who understands the very complicated system of coinage they had in Tokugawa period, the Tokugawa regime. Um, and that was oftentimes with being able to do sums comes along with that comes the ability to make notes you know i've i sold three pairs today or something like that um and so we find that basic education was spreading fairly rapidly and it's there's also a, a sense that perhaps women's education was under represent under acknowledged uh, there is a, a famous case from ok- uh, okayama where the schoolmaster said they did not write the names of their women pupils in their rosters because it was considered unseemly for a woman's name to appear in public. Uh, And so in that case, the women may be in the classroom and we don't know it. Um, And of course, literacy was a complicated issue. Some women could read and write only in the syllabary uh, some, uh, such as the wives and widows of the daimyo, whom Shiba Keiko talks about, ha- not only were very literate, but had a vast store of knowledge drawn from the classical tradition. You know, they could quote thousands of poems and write and use those poems in writing new poems. Uh, others had an excellent command of Chinese characters, like the woman you study, Bettina, as I recall. And so... Uh, you've got a huge, when you talk about women in literacy, it, it's it's very hard to say exactly how much women knew because some women some women knew a lot and some women did not know so much. 
Uh, and of course, doc, you're right, documentation is a real issue. Uh, men's writings were much more likely to be saved than women's in an age when paper was scarce and expensive. Uh, and so if the paper is, is scarce and you need to make a note, and oh, here's a letter that came in for my wife, I'll just use that and write something more important on the back, and then you can't read what was on the front. Uh, also, if the winter, the w- wind is blowing and there's a crack in the wall, you need something to fill in the crack, well, let's take this letter that came in, we'll stuff it in the crack. And it happened. We, they, you know, they found that in farmhouses sometimes. Uh, most materials on women's lives come as part of a collection of men's writings. I mean, we, we, we're really fortunate sometimes when we find a man who was a pack rat, uh, and who just saved everything because when he saves everything, he also saves things written by women. But some men were more discriminating and threw things out. Uh, it can be particularly frustrating to read in a man's diary, for example, that his wife received a letter and that letter has disappeared. And that happens so often. Uh, so no, women, men's writings are much more likely Men's writings are preserved. Men are the ones who are most likely to preserve writings, and they're most likely to preserve the writings by men. I would say that is fascinating. And I remember, I think uh, Bettina, it was in the two articles that you translated that talked about Kyokte um, um, Bucking's daughter-in-law and Lai Shinsu's mm-hmm. daughter or daughter-in-law. Their roles in um, keeping up their households, right? Um, actually, I did not translate any anything. Um, no, I should not. My take apologies. This, this. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, I have not. <laughs> I'm not a good translator. You know, I have trouble already writing. So don't make me translate on top of that. Um, the yes, actually, I mean, in addition to to Anne, I mean, she's completely right. So for for that wonderful um, record. That, that entire collection of records by Rai Shuisu, uh, Shisu, we only have that because Rai Shunsu, her husband, it was so important for him to keep records and to because he started a new family, a family of samurai, and he wanted to keep, keep that going. So he started a diary. He made her write a diary. And while he was away often on alternate attendance, she was in his place to continue writing what happens every day in the household, what people showed up and so forth. Because of that, we have the diaries of hers. Um, I mean, of course, later her son, their son, Dai Sanyo, became, became also very famous. So every piece of paper that has his signature on it, you will find um, people will try to collect them and keep them. And if you look at the overall documentation, you will see that Rai Shisu should have many more records, but they were not kept because they were not dealing with the household <laughs> and mm. the family. So you don't find as many um, you know, beautiful handwritten um, little things that scrolls that you would put up, although we know she produced them, but you know, the, the Sanyo was there. You know, you have the, that person who is really famous for that. Um, but her diary, her letters, because they all relate to the family relations, were of course kept. And that is even today for the family very important to keep these records because it's part of their history. And that is one of the things that Shunsui had in mind. If you go over to Takisawa's household, Kyokte Bakin and his daughter-in-law, here too, I mean, he was the person who kept everything until he had to sell it, right? So, I mean, he was the person who was very much in writing this diary and the daughter-in-law had to continue writing this diary um, on his stead when he was not feeling well. But in the chapter by um, Itasaka Noriko, you also see how, you know, today people only know his way of portraying his daughter-in-law as someone who is hardly literate, who could just scratch, you know, hardly being able to scribble down a few things, although we know that she was um, highly educated, very literate. She could write these complicated characters, um, actually. So it's really interesting. But again, the stuff was preserved because 
of the man behind. <laughs> so, so <laughs> it's lucky for us. So we, we cannot really complain, but it is also something that we need to point out um, when we, you know, and I think Luke Roberts makes a very good point in his um, chapter where he has to make use of the man's writings and actually to throw on a different a different publication by Amy Stanley, who, you know, her, her new book on Stranger in the Shogun City, where she takes up the letters, not only of the woman, Tsunano, but actually her brother, right? And that's why they are kept there. You know, it's, it's the, the temple and all that family relations that also then she was able to re- retell this fascinating story of Tsunano and all these things. And that all goes back to what Anne mentioned about, you know, why are records preserved and others are not. Now that you mention family, um, in your volume, you seem to use king-based and non-king-based networks to distinguish between the types of networks that these women were participating in. So why was family an important uh, criteria for women's networks uh, for the types of their net networks? Well, I think there, there are two reasons why family figures prominently in women's networks, I mean, in this time period anyway. Uh, one is that women then and now were often responsible for what is, has been called kin work in sociological terms, that is maintaining ties with family members outside the household, uh, especially at New Year's and at Midsummer in the case of Japan. Uh, and that's true even today, you know, the, if people still send new uh, Christmas letters or New Year's cards, it's usually the women who's in charge of those. Um, and the other, I think, is that for women, it is easier to build connections with family members than with outsiders. Uh, when the woman, you know, I focus on uh, Hirata Orise, for example, when she goes to Akita, not only does she spend most of her time with her husband's kin, she was actively discouraged from going out. Uh, not for her were poetry writing circles, for example, and the only men she met outside of Ken were her husband's associates. And this, this changes in modern times when women leave work to go work in the company of neighbors or strangers or participate in, in civic organizations. Uh, but even so, the, you know, the, the first, you know, you're always going to have your relatives around, your kin around, and that becomes a sort of uh, essential or, um, you know, a, a part of who you are, I guess I would say. So I think that, uh, and much more so for women than for men, because men are much more outside the household and they can rely on their women for it to take care of the kin work for them. That's a very good point. Would you like to add any, Patina? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, what Anne is saying, and I think, so when I reflect back on on the chapter that I wrote, I mean, Shizu's position from the very beginning was to link to families of scholars. So she was always the the person, you know, in charge of helping to um, make this connection prosper. So you have scholar, scholars who really would like to be connected not only intellectually, but also you have the family bonds. And um, you can see how her sister marries into another scholar's family and how they all um, you know, start intermarrying. And you, know, you see something that we know, of course, from um, high-ranking samurai families where you know daughters would usually be used as the link to an alliance from a different family. And you can see this also here now in the Tokugawa period very clearly amongst the scholars and how those who have a very ambiguous um, social status, some of them are commoners, others of them are in the employ of a lord and thereby, you know, they have samurai status. So you have these, these links of these women that have to be literate for that purpose, have to be highly educated so that they can do the correspondence that the husbands are too busy to do. Um, so they have to, to be writing every day the letters, having to send and ship out gifts to their families back home or to their relatives, to their new friends and acquaintances. So I think these... Um, 
kinship relations. It's very important. It's, it's one of the functions of the wife, at least of a scholar, that I notice in the late Tokugawa period that many of these women actually shared. And you can see how they, they develop very similar patterns. We have a few diaries, you know, lengthy diaries by women, and they often come out of that t- same type of family structure, you know, being married to scholars or being daughters of scholars. So you you see that these um, because of that ambiguity that comes with being a scholar, you know, what is that in, in Tokugawa society? Um, you have them really in all kinds of colors and labels and ranks. So making a point out of that and and um, you know just also being part of that entire network, how they have to be integrated in that. And I mean, Shizu, she really enjoys doing that as well. And she, the moment she's a widow and um, she she can travel again, she goes. She goes for months away to Kyoto to meet with people that she has not seen in person ever. And you know, all these people through her husband's network and through her son's network, and she enjoys it thoroughly. So. This seems to tie into the third focus of the book, which is mobility. Um, So you mentioned that um, social status affected their engagement in different kinds of network. Could you talk about this aspect more? Yes, I guess I don't want to give too much away from the book. <laughs> um, I want still readers to go through the individual chapters. But I mean, as you see, of course, the women that are treated mainly in the in this volume, we have to yeah, admit that. I mean, they are not of low, low rank. I mean, these women sort of, you know, they, they, they are coming out of um, good families. They were educated, right? That's why they could write. I mean, most of the cases, um, either of you know, wealthy commoner households or lower rank um, samurai households. So you have all already here something that, that brings them together, but also that would um, offer two different paths of mobility. And here, I guess, we see again um, how status can divide them. So for men, you know, we, we know about these narratives that, you know, men all of a sudden in the, Later, we got a period apparently were very flexible and mobile. They could just go anywhere if they joined. But what about women, right? And I think in these chapters, you see different types of paths. And the only one um, path that I would like to, to emphasize here, because I think there needs to be more done, so it's something new that the reader maybe not see right away in the book, because you should look at all the others in the book, um, is religious groups. I think in the past few weeks in particular, I started thinking more about it and the importance of religious groups and the opportunities for women for physical mobility that comes with these religious groups. And of course, we know about the bikuni, the the traveling nuns in medieval Japan, and that has been explored. And we know about Christian missionaries, how they, they gave career opportunities to women in the Meiji period. But what about the Tokugawa period, right? Religion, all of a sudden, to me at least, but maybe I'm just ignorant of the entire literature. I think um, here we see new things coming up, a new research discovering how religious groups also in the Tokugawa period offered women career opportunities. And um, Fumiko's chapter about the new religion and Matsushita Chiyo, um, who was a wealthy commoner, and her important role um, within this new group and also the physical mobility that came along with it is something that is really important and needs to be more stressed. And we find actually Fumiko working also on a different publication that just came out what is it called? I have the book somewhere here. Yes. Oh, Christian Sorceress on Trial, which she um, co-edited with um, Kate Wildman Nakai and Mark Toivin, which addresses here too, again, the women playing a very important role in 
Um, that is a, a little bit of a, a strange religious group. But nonetheless, you know, some of these women were able to make a living. They, they opted out from family relations. And, you know, all the life that we just described, how, how nice it can be for some of the women and how not so nice maybe for others, they completely opted out from that and decided. And there was a path for these women to find a different life course. And I think maybe the focus more on these religious groups will, um, in the Tobugawa period, will help us all to, also to rethink a little bit this artificial divide between you know, before and after 1868, before the Christian missionaries come in and, and offer women, um, you know, all of a sudden these opportunities to go abroad and, you know, becoming school teachers and, and all these things. I mean, this is just a thought that is not really completely treated in the volume. But <laughs> maybe Anne wants to go back to the volume itself. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, mobility has so many different meanings from social mobility as in the uh, Rye family where they're moving from commoner to solarized status, uh, but also mobility of the opportunities or the, the uh, opportunities is perhaps not the best word, uh, when women are forced to move around, like in uh, Shiva Keiko's family, the, the physical mobility of, yes, of moving from at Edo way down to Kyushu, for example, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and what that does to one, uh, or the disruptions caused by war and how that forces women out of their, really forces women out of their comfort zone uh, and into into the mountains, into the cold, into the wet with small children. Uh, and so I think that even, but even when they do even when they're forced into circumstances like that, they find that the only way to survive is through networks. That is fascinating. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely wish um, we could have more of the authors here to talk about their chapters. But since, since uh, Bettina, thanks, you just mentioned the arbitrary division, <laughs> I thought I'd throw this question out too. So when Japan entered the so-called modern era in the Meiji period, were there any changes in women's engagement in social lives? I mean, of course, there were changes. Um, what would you see as the most important ones in terms of their engagement in social network? Well, I think that in modern times, women and men both had opportunities to serve the state. Uh, the women in textile families, the men in the military, this is an old, old division that people talk about. Uh, and they had opportunities to work outside the home, uh, and they had opportunities to participate in new forms of civic organizations whose aim was to improve society. Uh, Bettina has said that the new religions which start before in the Edo period, of course, continue into Meiji, and, and not only do we have the ones that you mentioned, but there's also uh, Deguchi now in Omoto-kyo, uh, which was founded in fascinating um, new religion. It was founded by women. Uh, but there, the, these were some of, I mean, in the Edo period, and to a certain extent in the Meiji period, religious organizations have the purpose, they, they tend to focus on the individual spiritual fulfillment, uh, whereas some of these civic organizations are trying to improve society. Now, you may not think much of the way they try to improve society. I mean, the you know, you've got the Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, which, although it's in this country, it was more to try to keep people from drinking, whereas in Japan, it was trying to deal with prostitution. Uh, but you also have more formal formalized education, and that leads to new opportunities to get published, uh, such as in the Women's Education Journal and other journals uh, by women that we talk about in this volume and other people have talked about. Uh, and this kind of getting your work into public, you really don't find in the Edo period. There's only, there are very few women whose writings were, uh, there's only one that I know of whose women's were really published, and that was Arakita, what's her name? You know what I'm talking uh -huh. about? Um, they, Rachel. Right, Rachel, thank you, yes. Um, but in the, in the modern period, there are many, I mean, there are many more opportunities for both men and women to get published. 
Uh, and there are also, of course, new types of work experience, such as the Tomioka Spinning Factory, or for better or for worse. Um, and all of these, provided, they both provided new opportunities for women to network, and they made new networks, new, I can't talk anymore, new networks essential for women to survive. Uh, so I think that, yes, there are, I, I think there are differences in the modern times. And maybe I can add here this one very interesting chapter by Nishisawa Naoko, also to talk a little bit more about the book, um, <laughs> because that gives a man's view of how women are supposed to function in the Meiji society that is supposed to be created new. So Fukusawa Yukichi's idea about, you know, what are the women supposed to do? And then Nishisawa makes a very good point about explaining what was the reality of all his daughters and his wife, <laughs> because they were not giving any options, right? None of them were sent overseas. Um, every time he he said, you know, they have to socialize and so forth. Well, those, those were forced social gatherings that they did not um, probably enjoy at all. And she also makes a point about, you know, so so we have here opportunities, yes, amongst certain groups, again, in society, but then those of, like, Fukusawa's um, social group, they would continue to intermarry. So there was really not much for them of flexibility. There was not much that would go on that they could go outside of the house and get mm -hmm. um, the education that was given to others. So, again, you know, seeing more more complexity of um, what goes on, especially still in the 19th century. So, you know, seeing that the 19th century needs really to be considered from start to the end, or then as they always like to have the long 19th century that goes back into the 17th and ends in the 20th, mm -hmm. um, but not, you know, dividing it up so arbitrarily just with one date and thinking all of a sudden, yes, things have changed. Yeah, that is a really good point. I completely agree. But moving towards the end of this conversation, um, what do you think are some of the problems that are holding off us from scholars from examining women's roles in early modern or pre-modern history? Um, how do you think we can do better in addressing such um, lack of scholarship in women's roles in the past without um, pushing too hard, I guess, for only the sake of political correctness? I know this is a huge, huge question, but I just wanted to know what you think. <laughs> well, I found it very entertaining, actually. <laughs> I mean, to a, to a great extent, whether it makes sense to talk about women in the context of early modern history depends on the questions we ask. Uh, some decades ago, I guess, Conrad Topman wrote a landmark study on the politics of the military regime. It's called Politics in the Tokugawa Bakufu, but it's a military regime between 1603 and 1868 from a male-centered point of view. And Hal Belizo criticized him for devoting maybe a page and a half to the women in the shogun's uh, in, uh, inner quarters. Oh, he was scathing. Uh, said, you know, why are you bringing these women in there? That's just meretricious. Um, and it would indeed not make sense to talk about the politics of this military regime solely from the perspective of the inner quarters. But that doesn't mean that women were irrelevant to the politics of the military regime. After all, as, as Patina has mentioned, the shogun deployed his daughters to shore up alliances. He selected his wife and concubines with political considerations in mind, and maintaining the inner quarters took a huge chunk out of his finances. And they complained, and he and his advisors complained about that at great length. Uh, and so you can say that ignoring women gives a skewed view of history. Uh, I remember decades ago, I submitted an article on the family ideology of rural entrepreneurs to the Journal of Social History. And one of the reviewers noted how refreshing it was to find mention of women because up to them, one could all too easily get the impression that early modern men reproduced through cloning. Uh, so to my mind, 
The problems that hold us back from examining women's roles have to do with the kinds of sources are available, which we've already talked about some of the problems that that can cause. But beyond that, the questions we ask and the perspective we take. Uh, and if somebody finds the approach we take uninteresting, well, they can read something else. I love your attitude. Absolutely love it. Um, what do you think, Medina? Oh, there's nothing better to add. <laughs> This is just wonderful. <laughs> Yes, um, that's. I, I I definitely think it's unfortunate that some people would criticize um, uh, research or studies like yours to be trying to justify for political correctness. But as your book, as this book shows, yeah. and as your other scholarship shows, it's not. Um, I, I mean, and you just mentioned it. You just summarized it so well. There were. Um, importances of women's roles. We just weren't able to see them from that specific perspective. Yeah, I think institutional history in particular makes it easy. Institutional history and intellectual history, uh, which, I mean, you know, for decades, intellectual history was considered the most difficult, the highest form of history that one could possibly do. And it was all too easy to completely ignore women in doing intellectual history. Uh, and, in, and in fact, it was considered so difficult that in studying for a very long time, people who studied Japan in this country weren't allowed to do it because it was considered too difficult for them. Am I something wrong? Um, but, and the same is, so they did institutional history where you can also ignore women if you really want to. And so I would say for, you know, I feel very sorry for these people who did ignore women because they, they left out so much of human life that's so much more interesting. Indeed. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for this conversation. We thank you. I mean, you took the time, you read the book, <laughs> you came up with very Yes, and yes, very we interesting do questions that. too. Yes. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. I truly enjoyed the book and I truly enjoyed your insights about these um, th these big or small questions that I had. So thank you. <laughs> and for our listeners to learn more about women's social roles in early modern Japan, make sure to check out Women and Network in 19th century Japan. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, Goodbye.